<laughs> I'm glad you asked, Pete. <laughs> Which is another way of, of kind of putting the, the question, is God uh, some sort of massive egoist who wants us to, to worship him so that he feels good about himself? Or as uh, Christopher Hitchens uh, was fond of saying, is God some sort of a celestial dictatorship, uh, something like analogous to sort of living in North Korea, uh, watching your every move and uh, just wanting to be praised and sort of living off the backs of everyone else and so on. Then we need to start by uh, getting a little bit more clear about what you mean by uh, worship, just to start broadening our thinking on this subject. Um, The word worship, of course, comes from the old term worth-ship, worth-ship, that is to, to give someone the honor the merit that they are due. N.T. Wright uh, here says that worship is self-forgetfulness as we remember and acknowledge God. So it's focusing uh, upon God. Uh, I've got a little uh, brief video clip from the theologian James K.A. Smith, which I think uh, is very good. Uh, Unfortunately, the um, sound system doesn't seem to want to talk to our computers today. Uh, So I've got my little speakers here. I've turned them up to the max. I think we'll be able to hear him, but we'll have to be a little quiet. So I think those who have issues with the whole business of of worship, their issues basically stem from a a two-sided misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of who God is in the Christian tradition and a misunderstanding of who Christians think people are. And if they shared those twin understandings, they would not have the problems with worship that they have. Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, will be a central passage uh, for us looking at here. This is my sort of paraphrase of it. Uh, Paul says, Therefore I exhort you in the view of God's mercies to present your lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, which is your appropriate act of reasonable or intelligent worship. Don't be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So why worship God? My basic answer is because of who God is and what he's done and because of who we are and what we need. And once you understand that, then you understand worship. Uh, the atheist Bede Rundle, uh, in his book, Why Is There Something Rather Than Nothing, uh, puts uh, a, a particular spin on this uh, worship question like this. He says, God should be above any sort of attention-seeking behaviour. And any insistence on being told how unsurpassingly wonderful one is does not rate highly. As Hume, in the guise of Philo, observed in one of Hume's dialogues, it's absurd to believe that the deity has human passions and one of the lowest of human passions, a restless appetite for applause. Is that what the whole business of worship uh, is about? I think that is a misunderstanding. You can see how a, a superficial reading of certain biblical passages could lead to that misunderstanding. So here's 2 Samuel 7.23. Uh, God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, uh, to make a name for himself, and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations of their gods before them, and so on. 
But why uh, redeem a people for himself? Well, because, as God says to Jacob in Genesis 28:14, so that all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. What is the motive behind God gathering a people to himself? Well, it's for the sake of all humanity. Exodus 14.4 says, I will receive glory by means of Pharaoh and his army and so on. And then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. Well, it makes all the difference in the world. We had a, a picture from the great dictator, Charlie Chaplin film last week, so I thought I'd put one in one of this week's talks as well. If it's some sort of tin pot human dictator saying, I will receive glory, or if in the Monty Python depiction here, it is actually God saying, I will receive glory. There is, uh, there is a difference here that makes a difference. Exodus 14.4, I will receive glory, yes, by means of Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I'm Yahweh. Again, that's the motive. This is just picking up a theme from earlier in Exodus 7.5. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. Well, so the whole uh, project of the, of the Exodus of the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt was done not merely for the sake of the children of Israel, but was done with an eye to revealing the reality of the true God to the Egyptians as well. And that is why if you look at the particular miracles, the, the, the 12 plagues and so on, the way in which they're directed at undermining Egyptian religious beliefs about the Egyptian deities being in control of this, that, and the other aspect of nature. So God is revealing himself to the Egyptians for their sake, as well as rescuing the children of Israel for the sake of all humanity. 1 Samuel 12.22, the Lord will not abandon his people because that would dishonour his great name. Oh, well, God is all concerned for himself again, isn't he? For it's pleased the Lord to make you his own people. But you have to realise that in ancient cultures, names carried far more significance than they tend to in our Western culture. My name expresses my character. When the Bible is talking about someone's name, what it's really meaning is their character. That's why it's significant on various occasions in the Bible when God, or Jesus, changes someone's name. You say, I'm, I'm changing your role in life, and so on. So the Bible reveals a God, wonderful medieval painting here, his greatness inherently incorporates a sharing, an other-centeredness, from loving relationship within the Trinity itself to God's loving relationship with creation, including even us rebellious humans, whom God created in his image as priestly rulers of the creation. But going to the New Testament and the revelation in Jesus, think of Matthew eleven twenty nine. Now, this is a statement, it's, it's kind of paradoxical. Jesus is talking about how humble he is, is, and yet we think if someone starts talking to us about how humble they are, how up themselves they must be, <laughs> they'll be describing themselves as humble. Place my yoke on you and learn from me, because I am gentle and humble, and you will find rest for your souls. Huge claims, and that would indeed be egotistical and blasphemous, unless it's true. And if it's true then it's true, and he is humble and not blasphemous. Um, look at Jesus' behaviour towards the disciples, setting them an example in his behaviour. This is from John 13, 14, 15. 
Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed, washed your feet, take on a servant's role in washing their dusty feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example so that you should do as I have done for you. And, and indeed, it was, it was the Christian focus upon Christ's humbleness that elevated humbleness into a virtue. The, the ancient Greeks would not have considered humbleness to be a virtue. Uh, it is part of the, the Christian tradition and inheritance of, of world that we now see humbleness as a virtuous thing. And of course, the ultimate expression of humbleness from the hymn in Philippians 2.8, and being found in human form, he, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's uh, an expression of humbleness and other-centeredness without parallel. So, why worship God? That's seen from the original Conan the Barbarian, proving that Arnold Schwarzenegger can act. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, whose God is, is greater, your God or my God? My God laughs at yours from his mountain where he is strong. Ah, but my God is the sky and the winds, and your God lives underneath my God. So my God's better than your God. And if, but you can see what's going on there in a sort of theological discourse about what the nature of gods and God and divinity and what is the appropriate kind of God to worship. If my God is greater than your God, surely you ought to worship my God rather than your God. But of course, as St. Can- Anselm of Canterbury uh, defined God as a being than which no greater can be conceived. The, the actual God would be, by definition, the God than which there is no possible greater God to worship. He is therefore, by definition, the only being worthy of worship, the being than which no greater can be conceived. A definition, of course, that plays a central role uh, within the ontological argument explained very briefly in this video clip by our friend Bill Craig. The ontological argument goes something like this. God is, by definition, the greatest conceivable being. Now, what would the greatest conceivable being be like? Well, he would be omnipotent. He would be omniscient. He would be all good. And he would be necessary in his existence. He would exist in all possible worlds. Now, if such a being is possible, that means that a being like that exists in some possible world. But you see, if a being of that nature exists in even one possible world, then it exists in all of them, because that's part of what it means to be the greatest conceivable being. But if it exists in all of them, then it exists in the actual world, therefore God exists. So the argument is basically, if you think that God's existence is possible, then it follows that God exists. So. Do you think it's possible that God exists? Well, I do. It seems to me that the concept of a being who is uh, omnipotent, omniscient, morally perfect, and necessarily existing is a coherent concept that's possibly instantiated, and therefore I believe that God does exist. Now, without getting drawn off too much into the uh, modal logic of the ontological argument, as formulated by modern philosophers, although it started back with Anselm, The point of the concept of God being the greatest possible being, that once you've got that concept in mind, you can start deducing, well, 
what kind of qualities must a greatest possible being have? Is it, is it, are you a greater thing for having knowledge or if you have no knowledge? Well, it's greater to have knowledge. And is knowledge the sort of thing that has a maximum a sort of knowing everything, a sort of being maximally intelligent, as it were, or maximally powerful? There couldn't be anything more powerful than being all-powerful, omnipotent. You can't be more good than wholly and entirely good, and so on. Now, a monk called uh, Galauno uh, uh, in Anselm's day was famous for questioning uh, Anselm's argument on this point and, and saying, well, that's a bit silly, surely. I mean, you could end up saying, well, what about the greatest possible desert island? You know, does, does that exist just sort of by definition, because I say, well, maybe I can conceive of a greatest possible island. But of course, Anselm points out that you, have, you, know, you haven't cottoned on to the uniqueness of the concept of a greatest possible being. That actually, maybe it's possible for there to be a greatest possible being, but it's not possible for there to be a greatest possible island. What sort of things make for greatness in a desert island? You know, well, palm trees are nice. It's nicer, it's greater if it has palm trees than if it doesn't. But what's the maximum number of palm trees that you can have? Well, there isn't a maximum number of palm trees, you know. You can always add more palm trees. You could always make the island bigger. Uh, you could, you know, always put, put some more fruit on it. And then we always have some more flowers or whatever. The, the things that make up goodness in an island don't have these sort of intrinsic maximums to them. Whereas there's concepts that make up the greatness of God, like goodness, power, knowledge and so on, do. And so there's a uniqueness about that concept. Uh, if you want to get into this, this um, area of philosophical theology, of, of thinking about the concept of God as the greatest possible being, that the best book to start with, I think, is Thomas B. Morris's book, Our Idea of God. Um, which he defines God as a being with the greatest possible array of compossible, that is, uh, can be put together, great-making properties. Things like existing, but to the maximal possible degree, that is, existing necessarily, rather than just contingently or dependent upon something outside of yourself. Power to the maximal possible degree. And I put under that, you know, the power to know things is an exercise of, of power. Um, goodness to the maximal possible degree. And there's a, a, a thriving sort of area of philosophical theology looking at the nature of God and trying to spell out in more and more detail uh, the, the uh, definitions of these things and to, to show the, co the coherence of these concepts. So talking about goodness, Bill Craig says, God's nature defines what goodness is. It's not as though God lives up to some external standard and does a good job at being good. He is goodness itself. Therefore, he is to be worshipped and adored because he is the highest good. He is the standard. Broadening it out, uh, some of my M. Filth thesis work looked at the, the nature of God and expanding this definition of God as the greatest possible being and thinking of him in, in terms of being the most beautiful possible being, defending the idea that, that beauty, like goodness, is an objective thing. Uh, following the philosopher G.E. Moore, he said that the beautiful should be defined as that of which the admiring contemplation is good in itself. 
The question whether it's truly beautiful or not depends on the objective question whether the whole in question is or is not truly good. Is it worthy of admiration? Think of Paul and Philippians talking about, think upon those things which are good, which are worthy of admiration. So thinking of God as the maximally beautiful being, there, there neither is nor could be a being more beautiful than God. This is expressed in the literature of the Bible in places like Psalms 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the expanse proclaims his, the, the work of his hands, the glory, the beauty of God expressed in the beauty and the glory of the creation that he has made. What about being proud or humble? There's a nice investigation of this by the Christian philosopher Paul Copan that you can find online. He defines pride as a kind of false advertising campaign, he says, promoting an image of ourselves because we suspect others won't accept who we really are. Pride, he says, is actually a lie. And of course, God can't lie. That's a lie about a person's identity or achievements. To be proud is to live in a world propped up with the falsehood about oneself, taking credit where it isn't due. Whereas humility, he says, involves having a realistic assessment of oneself. As Paul says in Romans 12, 3, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves in sober judgment. It's not about putting yourself down and saying, oh, I am but a worm, but it's about not puffing yourself up, having a realistic a knowledge of yourself, a realistic assessment of oneself that includes recognising not only weaknesses, but also strengths. A truly humble person won't deny his abilities, but if they're human, will acknowledge that the gifts come from God and that he can't take credit uh, for, for them. To be humble is to know our place before God, says Copan. So given these definitions, we can see that God can't be called proud by definition. Rather, he has, as an omniscient being, a realistic view of himself, not a false or exaggerated one. His view of himself isn't distorted, after all, he's God. He thinks accurately about everything, including himself. So if he thinks he is worthy of worship, he must be right about that. <laughs> but what about humanity? Um, here's a wonderful expression of the, the duality of humanity uh, from... Uh, Shakespeare, I'm going to go just a couple of minutes over, uh, as uh, performed by Richard E. Grant in the film With Nail and I. Pascal talked about the greatness and the wretchedness of humanity and how any true religion must necessarily diagnose this fact about humans correctly. What a sort of freak then is man, how novel, how monstrous, how chaotic, how paradoxical, how prodigious. Judge of all things, feeble earthworm, repository of truth, sink of doubt and error, the glory and refuse of the universe. So if we have this accurate representation of ourselves and we see our spirituality as a search to, to minimise the vileness and to maximise the greatness in humanity, um, then our entire spirituality of our attempt to live virtuously through our beliefs and our attitudes and the actions that follow from them. As Jesus uh, taught about loving God, or you could say worshipping God with all your heart and mind and, and strength, 
those categories, of course, map directly back to what Paul was saying in Romans 12, 1 to 2, presenting your lives, being transformed by the renewing of your minds and approving in your heart of God's will because you've been transformed to see the world through his eyes, as it were. This comes through the Greek and Hebrew words uh, translated as worship in the Bible that have to do with uh, bodily language about bowing down, kneeling, prostrating, beliefs and attitude, your attitude towards God, or demonstrating sacrifice and obedience, your actions towards God. So worship encompasses our spiritual beliefs and attitudes, and it's expressed and formed by our spiritual actions. Romans 12 describes worship as the, the intelligent, the reasonable ongoing submission of our beliefs, attitudes and actions to the perfect will of God so that we're transformed through relationship with him to be more closely and more closely what he intends for us to be as our creator. And what else should God's human creations want other than that? Why worship God? Because of who he is and what he's done and because of a realistic assessment of who we are and what we need to fulfill our potential. Thank you.